Yeah. Thanks for being here this morning. Appreciate it. Um, I know this week, if, if, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you've kind of been following the news and what's been going on, uh, especially over in the Middle East and, and just a lot of the brokenness and, and uh, just awful uh, senseless violence. And, and uh, we just we want to continue to pray uh, for that. I don't know if any of you have anybody personally that's uh, been affected by that firsthand, but I've actually been getting to know uh, a Jewish rabbi that's in, in Utah County. And uh, just uh, some of you that were at the uh, tabernacle event uh, heard him speak. He was actually over in Israel when all that happened. And uh, he said he and his family hopped on the first plane they could to get out. And he says he had family members that were going the opposite way to the front lines. And so um, been in contact with him a little bit and uh, just praying uh, for all the lives that are being affected um, all around the situation there. So um, it, Drew and I were talking a little bit too. I, we want to just be really, really clear. Um, as we study the Bible, um, it talks about Israel, right? And, and Jewish people and Judaism. And, and I just want to just emphatically say that when we're studying the Bible, the, the issues that we see are not a Jewish issue. It's not a problem with Jewish people or, or anything like that. It's a human issue. And so uh, I want to be very, very clear that as we're studying the Bible and talking about Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and things like that, like we are, it, there is no room for anti-Semitism. Um, we are looking at human issues. And it's not talking against anybody in particular. It's talking about this thing called this struggle between the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of, of, of self. And that is the problem. And, that's, and it doesn't matter what religion, what ethnicity, what race, what, what region of the world. It is a human condition. You can have someone who genuinely loves Jesus and still struggles with the issues that we're seeing in, in the Gospels, in the New Testament. And so I just want to make sure that as we, as we uh, are talking with that, that there's, there's no room for any type of anti-Semitism in any way. Um, and we want to, to pray for everybody who's being affected by, by this violence. And so um, it's been interesting because this week, probably a lot of people um, jumped to the passage that we just so happen to be getting to the, today. <laughs> um, and that is Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus kind of lays down, hey, this is what's going on, and this is what's happening, and this is what's going to happen. And so it's, I'm telling you guys, uh, we, we, <laughs> we study the Bible, and that is our bread and butter. That's how God reveals himself to us, and he gives us this gift. And so, so it's been so amazing over the years to see how timely uh, God has preordained what we're studying on the Sunday that we are. And so I think this morning is no exception. So let me ask you a question this. If you could know the day that you were to die, would you want to know? Any brave souls that would, you'd want to? Fascinating. Fascinating. We'll, we'll maybe have to talk one of these days about that because here's, here's the thing, right? Like, like most of us, we don't want to know. 
Um, because then we would spend the rest of our lives like obsessing about it or like living in fear and crippling and, 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 and stuff like that. Like, I got to know what, what you know that I don't. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so. Ah, there you go. There you go. Feel afraid because you don't know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? But we all handle that in, in our own ways because some people either live in fear and we, or, or, or we obsess about it or we just deny it, right? Like, like the, 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 apocalyptic, the apocalyptic genre is a huge moneymaker. I mean, movies like Don't Look Up, Armageddon, Day After Tomorrow, 2012, um, the Left Behind series, just all these different, you know, it's not just in secular media. The, the church capitalizes on it. It's big bucks, right? And if I, we used to laugh when I was a, when I was a youth pastor, I would always kind of put out a beginning of the year survey. Hey, what do you want to study this year? Every year without exception, Revelation would be the top one. And I was kind of like, he wins. Okay, next. You know, like, like, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? Right? Because we obsess and we, we want to, we want to, we want to figure all this stuff out. Right? And we, a lot of times fall into either denial, fear, or obsession. Now, this morning's passage has been dissected and ripped apart and analyzed and overanalyzed and used and abused time after time after time to see if we can crack the code, so to speak. Well, this morning we want to look at what Jesus said. We're going to look at it because it's there. Jesus said it. They wrote it down and it made it into the Gospels. And so guess what? We're going to read through it. This morning, it's kind of a longer, longer section, so bear with me. We're going to do a lot more reading of the Bible and a little less talking about it, but uh, we are going to look at it in four different sections, and we're going to try to look at what Jesus is actually saying. He, wants a, he knows his time is very, very short, and so he wants us to understand what happened, what's happening, and what's going to happen. All right, let's dig in. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. Now, what's really interesting is that this seemed like craziness to the disciples, okay? This is kind of a model of, this is a recreation model of what the temple complex looked like, right? Um, that middle part is the actual temple proper, but then you have the court of the Gentiles and you have the, the Solomon's colonnades and everything like that. I think it was about like over 15, 1600 feet long, about 900 feet wide. Uh, you had uh, 160 huge pillars that surrounded it, the Solomon's colonnade. I mean, these, these stones look tiny. They are because they're on a model, right? Um, um, but when they were actually building, I mean, these things weighed tons and tons and tons and tons a piece. Like, it was a huge deal to build this. And it was built back. We actually were Friday morning, we were looking in First Kings at Men's Bible Study um, at the, one of the 6 a.m.s. Um, so there you go. Uh, about how they were building this, right? Like, it was indestructible. Well, then the unthinkable happened during the Babylonian exile is that they came in and they tried to destroy it. But then they came back and Nehemiah helped him rebuild it. So you had the first temple and then you had the second temple. And, and then Herod um, uh, rebuilt it again and kind of uh, did some remodeling and, and, and made it even bigger and better and things like that. Um, and so the disciples are looking at this and they're like, how can you destroy this? 
I mean, it would take forever to do this. Well, what's really interesting is that within 30 years of Jesus saying this, the Roman emperor uh, Titus came in and ransacked the city. And he desecrated the temple, which we'll talk about a little bit here. But then he literally, they burned they burned Jerusalem. And the fires were so hot that all the gold fixtures seeped and melted into the cracks of the stonework. And so you're Titus. There's gold in them rocks. What are you going to do? You're going to rip them apart and get the gold that seeped in between there. So what had happened? They literally took apart stone by stone to get all the gold out of there. Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. Historian, this is unreal. If you study the the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it is gut-wrenching. There's a historian that lived at the time. His name was Josephus, and he recorded a lot of the things that we see in the Bible that substantiate uh, what what was being talked about. And Josephus, Josephus, sorry, Josephus, there we go, uh, said this, no pity was shown on account of age or out of respect for anyone's dignity. Children or elderly, lay people and priests alike were slain. The battle surged ahead and surrounded everybody, including both those who begged for mercy and those who resisted. The flames spread out at a great, to a great distance and its noise mixed with the groans of the perishing. One would have imagined the whole city was aflame. There was, there was talks about like what happened because the people were stuck in Jerusalem. Um, there was even reports of parents turning to cannibalism of their own children to stay alive. I mean, these conditions were unbelievable. And Jesus said, you think this temple is indestructible? It's going down. It's going down. And then in verse 3, it says, Later, Jesus on the Mount of Olives Uh, he sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us when all this will happen. What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Now, it's kind of understandable. They're kind of like, this is kind of a big deal. Let us know when it's going to happen, right? And so so they look at it, they come to him, and, and what's really interesting is there's a little Easter egg in here. I had no idea about this, but in the Old Testament prophetic book, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, Zechariah talks about how the Mount of Olives, which is a north-to-south mountain range, will be split east-to-west when the king returns. The king will return, and the mountain will be split to make a way of escape for God's people through the mountain region. It's kind of like symbolic of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, right? Like the Messiah, the king will come and will make a way for his people to escape. Mount of Olives. Where's Jesus, the returning king, sitting? The Mount of Olives. And he's talking about all these things are going to happen, but guess what? God will make a way for his people. It's going to split east to west. Now, what's really interesting here is that this is also reminiscent of the ripping language that we see in the, in the gospel. What happens when Jesus uh, begins his earthly ministry, his public ministry? The heavens rip open and the Spirit of God descends on God the Son in, in physical form, right? So the heavens rip, they rend. This is a violent ripping. And then, and then what else happens is that when Jesus dies on the cross, what rips, what rends, what's torn? The temple veil. So then he's saying when the king returns, the mountains will be ripped, will be rent, will be opened and torn. 
It's so interesting to look at these themes throughout the Bible. And so, so we look at when the king returns, he will make a way. And understandably, the disciples want to know when and how to know when this is going to happen. And so he continues in verses 4 and 5. Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. Don't be misled. Many will come and try to deceive and lead people away from Jesus. Now, here's the thing is that when we're talking about death and the, the apocalypse and the end of the world, it's a sensational thing, right? I mean, we're like, oh, what are we going to do? The problem is, is when we become consumed with it, we become more susceptible. And if we're constantly obsessing about the end, the end, the end, we're going to gravitate towards anything that promises us the inside track, the inside scoop, the what's going to happen, what that, you know. You understand what I'm saying? When we become obsessed with it, we become more susceptible to being misled. And Jesus does not want us to be misled. He doesn't want us to go after every charismatic leader that says, I have the answer. I can tell you what's going to happen. He says, don't be misled. Don't be led astray because Jesus needs to be the focus. Verse 6. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but won't end. But, but, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Oh, joy. Right? Oh, joy. There's always been wars. In fact, there's been wars to end all wars. And then there's been more wars to end all wars, right? There's always been famine. There's always been weather phenomenons. I mean, if you're watching the news in the Middle East and then what's happening in Afghanistan, cataclysmic earthquakes. And we're, what's happening all around the world? Famine, right? Like all the pieces are there. But the problem is, is that they've been there. These are like birth pains. Now, do you have a baby? Do you just go to the hospital and whoop, there's the baby? No, there's these things called birth pains. I've never had them personally, but I will tell you a harrowing experience when my wife was having our first baby, a la natural, and we did this whole birthing, breathing thing like that. And I'm in the hospital, and I was like, okay, babe, breathe. And I'm like trying to do the breathing with her, and all of a sudden, I start getting really lightheaded, and I start <laughs> going down. And what's even more embarrassing is that all the people in the delivery room went to our church, and I had their kids in our youth group. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Jason, moron, breathe in. Don't just breathe out. I was like, okay. And so they literally lay me down on a bed next to her. And she's like, yeah, Nicole's way stronger than me, let's be honest. Um, but those birthing pains, right? Like pain means progress. There is purpose to the pains. Now, we are very pain avoidant. We don't like pain. When struggles, when trials, when hardships, when we have conflict, we don't like it. But we turn away from the very progress, from the process that Jesus can use to mature us, to develop us, to deliver us, to, to bring us into who he wants us to be. And the same thing is true on a global scale. These are birth pains. Yes, they hurt. They're excruciating. I would never want to be a woman giving birth. I pray that that never happens. Just kidding. I know that won't ever happen. There you go. Come on. Um, but, you know, like, we have to understand that there is purpose and meaning to it. 
And then we see in verses 9 through, through 14, Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. Who wants to become a Christian today? You're going to be arrested, persecuted, condemned, tortured, killed. Let's go. That's good news, right? It says, And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. The Bible talks a lot about false teachers, false prophets, right? And it's anyone who claims a special revelation that ultimately leads people away from God. It can sound really good. There was false teachers and false prophets that were saying what the government wanted to hear, what the economists wanted to hear, what the, what the medical people wanted to hear, what the, what the poor people, what the rich people, what the ins and the outs. They, they were so good at tickling ears and people would say, I want that. That's good news to me. And so these false prophets were twisting and turning the truth in a way that ultimately led people away from God instead of to God. And he says, be so careful about that because sin will run rampant. What sounds good isn't always good. What glitters isn't always gold, right? And what does he say the effect is? Love grows cold. I'm going to make a pretty bold statement but we live in the most loving, tolerant, accepting society that is also the meanest, the cruelest, the most exclusive, and the most hateful. What's the news? Why can't you be more loving? We're going to cancel you. You disagree with me? Well, then you're against me. We can't have conflict in a productive way because if we disagree with each other, We'll just cancel. I'm going to silo my group over here and you get your, and we're going to start attacking each other. Love has grown cold. Love in our culture is not real love. It's not agape, Christ-like, sacrificial love. To say, I might disagree with you, but I care about you and I'm going to do what you can't even do for yourself. I care about you and I love you. I think it's so important to look critically at how our world says it's loving, but it's actually masked as hate. And it calls real love hate. It's very ironic, right? Now, what's interesting, though, is that right after he says all these hard things will happen and love will grow cold and hate will be running rampant and sin and everything like that, he also says that in that dark world, light will, will shine brighter is that the truth of the gospel, Jesus's grace, his mercy, his love, his transformation, his forgiveness, his, his genuine presence of who he is will shine even brighter. And people will take notice. That is such a powerful thing. We don't, it's kind of like, well, if it means getting arrested and being persecuted or being treated like we're weirdos, can people just find Jesus on their own? Do I have to be the one to tell them, right? Like, like, do I have to sign up for that part too? But again, he wants us to understand the purpose, the meaning behind it. And then he goes to, to 24 verse 15. He says, The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet, prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, desecration standing 
in the holy place. And then I love how this is added in. The, 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 the scribe who is writing this says, reader, pay attention. Listen. <laughs> pay attention to what I just said. There will come a time when this, the, 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 this, the desecration, the abomination of desolation will happen. Now that, that phrase, the actual Greek says abomination of desolation. It means that something so foul will happen that it destroys the place. Um, Jesus is talking about three things here. One, he's talking about the past. He refers to Daniel in the, in the book of Daniel. We see in, in the year 168 BC, uh, the, the conqueror Antiochus Epiphanes sets up an idol to Zeus in the temple. That's pretty sacrilegious, right? Can you imagine um, setting up a te- uh, an idol to Zeus in the Holy of Holies? And then even on top of that, he takes a pig and sacrifices it to Zeus. Now, if you know your, your Jewish history, pigs are unclean. You can't even touch them. And to have that, the blood spilt on the holy altar, that is so sacrilegious. That is so painful for them as a people. So that happened. But then it's also going to happen in the near future when 70 AD, when Titus, the king who conquers uh, Jerusalem, he sets up, up an altar to himself and he says, I am God, worship me. That's desolation. That's, that's an abomination, right? But then he also talks about in, in Revelations, both uh, Second Thessalonians and Revelations, talks about how the Antichrist in the end times is going to come and he's going to take the temple because the temple will be rebuilt a third time. And, and so if we know if a temple's getting built, we kind of know, oh, okay, we're a step closer, right? But, but, um, but in that rebuilt temple, the Antichrist will set up an image of himself. And again, just like the other rulers will say, I'm God, worship me. Now, the problem is, is that they're not God. And so if anybody's claiming the place of God, that's a very dangerous place to be in. It's kind of like we said, sovereignty of self versus sovereignty of God. Jesus is, trying, is tying together the whole story of humanity, and he's pointing to the return of the king. Verse 16. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return for even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Then, if anyone tells you, look here, here's the the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For the false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go look. Or look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows that there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. 
And the last sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blasts of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen from all uh, chosen ones from all over the world for the furthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know the summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these, th- all, see all these things, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. So if you, somebody says this is the day that's going to happen, it's probably the safest date in the history of the world, <laughs> right? Because you know, if, if they know, they know more than even Jesus does. And that's kind of an odd position to say that you're in. So if there's end times people that are saying, oh, this is going to happen right here, right here, we don't know. But what we do know is when it's going to happen, it's going to happen quick. And it's going to be final. Then he continues um, in verse 37. It's going to be like in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. And he says, two men will be out in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Um, And then verse 42, you too must keep watch for you don't know what day the Lord is coming. Um, And he says in verse 44, be ready at all time for the Son of Man will come when it's least expected. Then he, he keeps on going through, through the end there. It's kind of like if, if you are entrusted with a household and if you know when the master's coming back, well, then you're going to quickly like, let's get it cleaned up, let's get it cleaned up, right? The point of chapter 24 is this. This is the first, and don't worry because the other ones go way quicker. Be ready. Be ready. We're not promised that we're not going to know what day, what hour, even what year, But he wants us to live in a state of readiness. We can't live like this world, like this life is all there is. We can't can't go through life on autopilot. autopilot. We need to live in a state of readiness. Now, that doesn't mean go to Sportsman Warehouse and buy up all the ammo, get all the freeze-dried meals, dig a trench under our house, Uh, because we're going to outlive the end of the world. It's the end of the world. (laughs) It's not going to help in the end, right? Um, But he says, be ready, and we're going to continue to read, and we're going to understand more of what he means here. Chapter 25, verse 1. He talks about, for the sake of time, I'd really encourage you to go back. I was going to read through this, but just for the sake of time. In verses 1 through 13, he talks about how there's this wedding party and there's 10 bridesmaids. And, and they know the wedding is coming, but they don't know when it's going to happen. And those 10 bridesmaids, there's some weird cultural stuff in here that I won't get into, but, but basically they would, they would wait and they would wait for the groom to come back and they would have these, these torches 
and, and it was uh, uh, fueled by oil, burnable oil, right? And so their job was to tend to their, to their lamps, to their torches, and make sure that when, when, the, when the groom came, they could light up their torches, right, and light the way. Well, the problem was is that some of them got bored. Some of them got distracted. They let, they let their oil run out. And so the other five are kind of like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done that. And then all of a sudden, here comes back the, bride, the groom. And, and, well, the heat hasn't come back yet. All of a sudden, the, the five that were wise said, maybe you should go get some more. And they're like, oh, yeah, you think? Maybe we should. So they go back to town, and they try to go buy some. While they're in town, the groom comes back. And then they come back and are kind of like, oh, wait, the doors are closed. And they're like, yeah, because the groom came back. You missed the party. The big point on this section is this, to be patient and to be persistent. To be patient and to be persistent. Living in a state of readiness doesn't have to be stressful. We don't have to live at a 10 all the time. But it's, it's the state of just saying, Am I, is my life reflect my relationship with God? If I say I love Jesus, does my life reflect that? Or do we get distracted? Do we neglect the most important responsibility that we have? The, the point here is that we are responsible for our own spiritual well-being. Like, like we've said before, we need to water our grass, right? We can't expect just, oh, I'm, I just let it all go, and, and when, it, when, it, when it matters, then I'll go take care of it. It matters right now. It matters right now. So be ready, be patient, and persistent. Then the next section um, is, is in 14 uh, through 30. It's the parable of the three servants. And you guys probably know this story where the, the master is leaving town and he has three servants. And to one, he gives five talents. To one, he gives two. And to, gives, to, to the, the third one, he gives one talent, right? And the first servant, he takes the five talents and he says, hey, I love this master. I care about it. And so I'm going to go take these five talents that he's entrusted me with and I'm going to go put them to work. And when the master comes back, guess what? He has 10 talents. And so the master says, good job. I'm going to give you more. The one that had two said, hey, I love the master. I'm going to go put these two talents to work. He's a gift. He's entrusted to him. He's entrusted them to me, and I'm going to, to put them to work. And so the master comes back. And he says, hey, way to go. You were faithful with two. I'm going to give you more, right? But to the one that gave one, what did he do? He went and he dug a hole and he buried it because he didn't love the master. And he's kind of like, well, at least though you gave me one, I'll give you one, right? Now, that's not a very loving way to receive a gift. It's not a, a very wise way to steward the gifts that have been given us. Verse 29 says this, To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And we might say, though, it doesn't sound very fair. But when we're given gifts, there's an entrusted, there's, there, we, we're entrusted with that, right? We are all given gifts like time, finances, skills, 
abilities, possessions, relationships, homes, friendships, all sorts of stuff. What are we doing with them? Do we claim ownership that they are mine and, and, and they're for me and I'm sovereign over those things? Or do we say, God has entrusted these things to me and so he's been generous with me and so I want to be generous with how I use them for him. I like how the Life Application Study Bible says this, the issue is not how much we have, but how well we use what we do have. The issue isn't how much money we have. The issue isn't how talented we are, how privileged we are. The, the, the issue is what do we do with what we've been given? So the, the point of this third section is this, be faithful and fruitful. So be ready be patient and persistent, and now third, be faithful and fruitful. If we're not faithful, if we're not fruitful, if we um, are more apathetic, if we're unconcerned with the gifts that God gives us, it might show a little bit of animosity. Apathy reveals animosity. We don't really think about that. But if we don't care about someone, it means we're indifferent. If we're indifferent, then it's kind of like, eh, what Jesus did for me on the cross really doesn't matter that much to me. My life is my own. It's my happiness. It's my, it's me, 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 me. Sovereignty of self versus sovereignty of God. And then this last section, the last part of chapter 25, um, reads like this. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered. Um, all, all the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. And I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick, or in prison and visit you. And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you do, did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away from you, uh, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the, for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me and I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink and I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home and I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or in prison or, in si or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing, help, or refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into e eternal life. The point of this is to be compassionate. To be compassionate. Life Application Study Bible says this, we demonstrate what we believe by the way we act. If you notice, almost every week we talked about 
you know, discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our life. We can say we believe something, but do we really believe it? And so then what do we do? Moving from unbelief to belief. How do we go from knowing to doing, from believing to doing? We're, we're talking not just about we don't want to leave with this figured out. We want to leave with an idea of how to live these things out in our tangible lives. We demonstrate what we actually really believe by the way that we live and act. Jesus wants us to take care of each other along the way, especially in crazy times. And so, be ready, be patient and persistent, be faithful and fruitful, and be compassionate. The big point is this, Jesus will return. We need to make our time count no matter how much time we have. That's, I believe, the heart of this passage. Jesus knew, again, that his time on earth was short, and he wanted his followers to understand the larger story that was going on and to find hope and meaning and purpose and even joy in the middle of those birthing pains as they were living out one of the most uh, influential periods of the history of the world. His point is not to unduly scare people. I've heard these passages preached before in a way of just like, you never know. I mean, you could get in a car wreck on the way home and are you ready for your maker? Well, there's truth to that because whether it be the end of the world or the end of my world, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how. Are we ready? Are we living in a way that reflects the goodness of of God, our love for God every day in the meantime? We can't lose sight of the importance. We can't... uh, live in denial. We can't live in fear. We can't live in this unhealthy obsession, right, of trying to crack an uncrackable code. Or to, well, Jesus is going to return, and I'm going to, I'm going to have enough supplies to last me to the end, right? Like, we have to be so smart to be ready, to be patient and persistent, to be faithful and fruitful, and to be compassionate. Jesus wants us to find purpose, He wants us to understand that the way that we live out our daily lives really do matter. Now, here's the thing. These words were written 2,000 years ago. And he said, this generation will not pass away until these things have been accomplished. Now, there's a lot of debate over what that means because this generation that that listened to that, they were kind of like, well, wait a minute, it didn't come. Then the generation, and every generation since has said, well, maybe it's our generation. We don't know which generation he was talking about. We don't really fully understand what he meant by that, but we do know that he calls us to be ready, to be patient and persistent, to be faithful and fruitful, and to be compassionate. Some of us this morning need to be encouraged. Maybe the news cycle this week have just exhausted us. Maybe we just turn on the news, scroll through stuff on our phone, and, and we're listening on YouTube. And we're, we're I mean, this, this week on YouTube, my whole right-hand section was, this is it, this is it. I, this is the unrefutable proof that, and all these preachers and teachers and, and, and keyboard warriors are promising that they, they have the answer for what's going on. But the problem is, is that they're teaching their own teaching instead of pushing people to Jesus. This might be it. Pray that it is, but it might go on for thousands of more years. We don't know. 
But that's not the point. The point is, is what are we doing? So some of us need to be encouraged. If we are carrying the burden of fear, if we are paralyzed with, with apprehension, if we are just carrying that burden, Jesus gives us joy and freedom on the journey. We need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need to read this passage and to say, I got to get my, my life in gear here. I have been so focused on myself because when self is the focus, compassion goes out the window. Other people become a means to our end. They become a cog in our machine. Our marriages, our jobs, our neighbors, our children, our parents, our teammates, our coworkers, our friends become a means to our end instead of recipients of the gospel, tangible gospel that God has entrusted us with. So whether it be encouragement or challenge, I pray that the Spirit just speaks into our heart and that this week, instead of going through apathy or autopilot or, or crumbling or crushing fear, we regain our focus that the King will return and He wants our time to count along the way. So to close out, moving from belief to action, from knowing to doing, two things. One, as we see the news this week, pray. Pray. Pray for the love that has grown cold. We can pray for that locally. There's, there's all sorts of mean things that are happening across our nation. Pray for things that are happening in the Middle East. Pray for, for, the, for the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of followers of Jesus around the world that are suffering at this moment because of how love has grown cold. Just pray for them. Pray for those that are being, that are, that are being mistreated. Pray for those who are mistreating because Jesus loves them too. Jesus loved me when I hated him. He gave his life for me when I didn't want it. Greater love has no one than this, to, to, to give your life for your enemy, right? That is what love means. And we can pray for that on a global level. Pray that people will see the truth that comes only from Jesus. When we get into this revenge cycle, it never ends. It never ends. Now, there needs to be justice, but revenge belongs to God. Pray for people to turn away from their own hatred and turn to the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus. And then the second thing is this, is when we find our minds and our hearts turning towards ourselves, look for ways to be compassionate to others. Because when we're obsessed with ourselves, there's no room for other people. When I'm on the throne, everybody's there to worship me. We don't want to be in that spot. We want to look for ways to serve, to bless, to be compassionate to others. And I think that's intentional, that Jesus closed out this section with, I was hungry, you, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, you, you visited me. I was naked, you gave me clothes. There's a reason why he closed out with compassion as the out of the park. Because teacher... Which are the two greatest commandments? Or sorry, which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says. Our love for God is inseparable for our love for each other. We need to love God and we need to love what and who he loves. Amen? So let's look, let's look for ways to live that out this week. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you that it is a challenge. 
it is a very big challenge. Um, God, I know at times in my life I've read this passage with fear. I've read it with doubt. I've read it with uh, mistrust, with anger. But God, I pray that we read this passage with openness. God, you will return. You are the king. This is your kingdom. It's only under temporary occupation, but God, you will return. You are sovereign over your kingdom. God, we are your followers. And so, God, I pray that we adjust our hearts to yours instead of trying to blaze our own trail. God, give us wisdom as we hear all the voices, all the noise, all the clanging gongs and cymbals that are trying to promote themselves, that are trying to to garner followings for themselves. God, I think some mean very well, but God, I pray for, for humility in this. I pray that, that we simply live out your calling on our lives to love well, to serve, to be compassionate, to seek you, to seek your love, to seek your forgiveness, to seek your transformation. God, fill our minds, fill our hearts, fill our lives with that gospel. God, when, when we're afraid, when we're overwhelmed, God, give us your joy. Give us your peace. Give us your perspective. God, I thank you for this good news. We praise you in your name.